As we begin this morning, I'm going to invite you to use your imagination a little bit, to imagine yourself back in the first century. You live somewhere in Galilee, this region where Jesus was preaching. Maybe you came from the Decapolis or from Jerusalem, Judea, all this region, this large region, and you've heard about a man named Jesus. You've heard about this man named Jesus who's been traveling around and he's been speaking. And as he's been speaking, he's been talking about the good news of the kingdom of God. And not only has he been talking about the good news of the kingdom of God, he's been healing people. Their diseases, their sicknesses, people with paralysis, people who are demon-possessed, people having seizures. These people are crowding around him and he's touching them, speaking to them, and their lives are being changed. And these people probably don't come from the top of society, but they're fishermen, the everyday people. And so you are a part of this crowd and you hear that Jesus is by the Sea of Galilee. And so you follow along and you join with this crowd and you sit down with your back to the sea. And Jesus walks up on the hill and he takes a seat ready to teach. And you're eager you're expectant, wondering, what's he going to say? What's the good news of the kingdom that he wants to talk about? And he starts off, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful. For they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's how he starts his sermon, and you're wondering what's going on, what's he talking about? And so as you hear those words spoken to you, and we've heard them three times now, what do you hear? And so that's what we're going to be doing for the next few weeks. We're in the beginning of a series that's going to look at this whole, what's commonly referred to as the Sermon on the Mount in Matthews chapter 5 through 7. But for the next few weeks, not sure, maybe two, three weeks, depends on how quickly we get through them, going to be looking at this section called the Beatitudes. The section that begins with blessed or blessed, I never know which way to say it, so I might go back and forth between those two. So blessed in this beginning, and he's describing this life in the kingdom. And so last week and the two weeks before, we talked about the kingdom of God. And how it's God invading his presence in the world, in Jesus, making things right and inviting you to experience the power, the presence of his availability. And Jesus, at the end of this sermon, talks about the necessity of putting these words into practice. But these words maybe don't fit quite in there. How do you put these things into practice? And I think what he's doing is setting up something because he's speaking here and what he's talking about isn't something we do, but he's talking about God's grace. He's announcing good news. That's what Matthew said. He's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. He's announcing good news and he's inviting us to participate in it. So we're going to look at these beatitudes and beatitude simply comes from the Latin meaning blessed. 
And this section of the New Testament, Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, is probably, from what I can tell, the most written about section of the Bible, at least the New Testament. There are just books and books and books, articles, all writing, trying to understand what Jesus, because it's so central. It's, one of, it's Jesus' longest extended teaching. And so people have written entire books trying to understand this and trying to follow along this. And so one of the challenges is the Bible wasn't written in English. It was written in Greek, and Jesus probably didn't speak Greek. He spoke Aramaic. So we have a translation of a translation of a translation. And so we, sometimes if you've ever spoken a foreign language, sometimes what you discover is there's not always an exact word that carries over from one language to the other. The other is that within a language, even we use different words and we mean different things. So if I were to say to you, give me a definition for blessed. My guess is I'd come up with 40 or 50 different definitions here this morning. We all have different ideas of what that means. And maybe if you have your English Bible in front of you, there are some translations translated as happy. Or congratulations. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, and I'm going to use blessed. I think that's the best way to translate it. What do we mean when we say someone's blessed? Or more importantly, what does the Bible mean when the writers there talk about what it means to be blessed? And I think there's a couple things we can say. One is, blessed is something that God does for us. God is the source of blessing. We sang the song earlier, the doxology. How does it begin? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. So are there blessings that come from somewhere else? No, all blessings. So we're saying God is the source of blessing. Now I have blessings are both current and they're for the future life. But the bigger question is, is Jesus giving a set of conditions? Because if we read those, so take the second one. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Is he kind of setting it up saying, if you mourn, you're going to be rewarded. So if you want to please God, then do these things. Because that's often a way that these are read. That these are things we're supposed to do because my guess is most people, if you were to ask them, do you want to be blessed by God? Would most people raise their hand and say, yep, I want to be blessed by God. So there's a way of reading this that says, well, if you want to be blessed by God, it says right here, you better be mourning. You better be meek. You better be persecuted. And that's certainly one way to read it as a picture of the ideal Christian. The ideal Christian is somebody who's mourning, who's meek, who's hungering and thirsting, who's merciful, who's pure in heart, who's persecuted. And that's one way to read it. And I don't think it's a bad way to read it, but I think there's a different and maybe a better way to read it. And I'm not, Carl didn't just come up with an idea on his own of like, here's a different way to read the Sermon on the Mount. Um, I first encountered a different way of reading it uh, probably 15 years ago, reading a book called The Divine Conspiracy by Dallas Willard, a book that really changed a lot of the ways I think about things. But it's not just Dallas Willard. It's um, scholars like Scott McKnight and um, Glenn Klassen and um, David Gushy, Robert Gulick. All these folks say there's something different going on here that what's happening is on, these are the in spite of. 
And that's the way Willard talks about it. He says, these are talking about blessings in spite of. In other words, people aren't blessed because they mourn, but in spite of that. In other words, Jesus is making clear the kingdom of God is available to all. It's kind of a way of saying, Jesus has come and says, God's presence is available to all. The kingdom of God is here. God's presence is available to all. And so the question is, who's in and who's out? Who can be a part of the kingdom? Who can enjoy these blessings? Who can enjoy this part of it? And Jesus paints this big picture and says, well, the mourning can. Those who mourn can. Those who meet can. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those who are persecuted. Because oftentimes, for the people on the outside looking in, somebody who's mourning doesn't look like they're blessed. Somebody who's being persecuted doesn't look like they're blessed. Somebody who's meek doesn't look like they're blessed. There was a way of looking at things and they don't seem like they are who they are. In other words, when we say, when Jesus says these people are blessed, he's talking about who's in and who's out. And it's not who we think it is sometimes. And that's what Jesus is getting at. And so I think... Dallas Willard talks about, he says, it clarifies the free availability of God's rule and righteousness through reliance on Jesus. It's clarifying that it can be all. And so he goes on, he says it this way. He says, they, meaning the Beatitudes, do this, in other words, clarify the availability of the kingdom by simply taking those who, from the most human point of view, are regarded as most hopeless, most beyond all possibility of God's blessing or even interest, and exhibiting them as enjoying God's touch and abundant provision from heaven. So what he's saying is there's this way God is, when Jesus is speaking, we're looking at people who seem like the most hopeless, the most out of touch, the farthest away. And Jesus is saying, no, the kingdom of God is available to them. He said, this fact of God's care and provision proves to all that no human condition excludes blessedness, that God may come to any person with his care and deliverance. So when Jesus announces this and begins with this series of blessings, part of what he's doing is setting up this idea. He's saying, this kingdom that I'm talking about is available to everyone. Not just to the spiritual elite, not to just the people who have it all together, but to the lost, the outsiders, all these broken. Because remember, who's this crowd of people that's around him? It's the fishermen, it's the broken, it's the people who've been paralyzed and sick and possessed by demons. All these people that are normally on the outside, people who are looked down on, who don't seem like they have it all together, who don't seem like maybe God is involved in their life. And Jesus is looking at them and saying, it may look to the world like God doesn't care about you. It may look to the world like you're not, but I'm telling you something right now. You are blessed and all people can be blessed through God in Jesus Christ. In other words, as Stassen and Gushy said, they are based not on the perfection of the disciples, but on the coming of God's grace. So the blessings that come to people aren't based, when God blesses us, it's not because we're good. But it's based on God's grace. And that's the story of the Bible. It's the story of the Bible, that, that God delivers us and participates, and we participate in his work. That God comes and it's his initiative that does things. I'm going to turn to another passage where Jesus is speaking in Luke chapter 4. Now Luke doesn't have the Sermon on the Mount, but he records 
kind of what's Jesus' sort of first sermon. And he says this in Luke chapter 4, beginning at verse 17. He says, And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, that is to Jesus. And unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. You hear that word again? He has, me he has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I'm going to read a little bit more from Isaiah that Jesus quotes there, or he's reading from in the synagogue. Isaiah 61. And he goes on, he says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide those who are grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. And he goes on and he says down in verse 7, Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion. Instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in your land and everlasting joy will be yours. And so Jesus comes and he speaks these words and he says, I have come to proclaim good news to the poor. I proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And that's exactly what he's doing here in the Beatitudes. I like the way Stassen and Gushy talk about it, what he's talking, they're talking about um, Luke chapter 4 and say, is this a passage about human effort to live up to high ideals? No, it's not. Is it urging us to become poor prisoners, blind, and victims so that God will reward us? Or is it a passage of celebration because God is acting graciously to deliver us from our poverty and captivity into God's reign of deliverance, justice, and joy? So this is crucial to understanding the story of Jesus and the story of the Bible. That God gives his grace and grace to the undeserved. And this grace is something Grace is God's deliverance. It's his transforming initiative. It's not our achievement. And people knew that. So here's Jesus. He says it in two different places. He says, I've come to proclaim good news to the poor. And then what does he say in the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the poor. Because Jesus is talking about the good news that he's bringing. And the people knew this. In Luke 4, 22, the, shortly after Jesus does this, it says, all spoke well of him, that is Jesus, and were amazed at the gracious words, or we could say the words of grace that came from his lips. So that's what Jesus was doing. And I think it's what he's doing at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. He's announcing the good news of grace. That God is coming and he's saying, you may feel like you're broken. You may feel like you're on the outside, but God's deliverance is coming. In fact, he's saying it's coming in me. Not in me, Carl, but in me and in, in Jesus. Jesus is talking about it's coming in Jesus himself to bring deliverance and grace to the people. And it's coming to people across all spectrums. It's coming to the poor. It's coming to the meek. It's coming to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's coming to the persecuted. There's no one left out, but the good news of the kingdom of God is available to all.
It's about God's grace. So we're moving along. We're all excited. And now we're going to take a slight detour and talk about one caution as we think about this. Because as we speak of grace and about God's deliverance, we're tempted sometimes to equate grace with passivity. The idea that if, if God's given grace, we do nothing. But again, back to Dallas Willard, he says it this way. He says, grace is not opposed to effort, but it is opposed to earning. Grace is not opposed to effort, it is opposed to earning. So even though Jesus announces this, because as we follow along with this, Jesus announces and begins this sermon with this message of grace, but then he goes on and he says, after this, there are these ways we're invited to live. I think one of the best exhortations, explanations um, on this idea of grace was written by a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German theologian and he wrote a book, um, another transformative book called The Cost of Discipleship in many versions, but also simply the larger version simply called Discipleship. Um, and he wrote, he lived um, in the 1920s, 1930s, but he wrote Discipleship or The Cost of Discipleship from 1935 to 1937, living in Germany. So if you know your history, what's going on in Germany in 1935 to 1937? It's the rise of the Nazis. It's the rise of the Nazi party and all that's going on. And he's talking about the challenges that are going on. And he's writing and he describes what he talks about as cheap grace and costly grace. And the editors of one of the volumes of Discipleship say this. The catchphrases cheap grace and costly grace seem to sum up so well the problems posed by the bondage of the churches to secular powers and the reductionist faith of traditional churchgoers, which proved so fatal under the Nazi regime. So he's saying the church was caught up in something, and one of the ways that Bonhoeffer described it was cheap grace and costly grace. And we're going to come back to how this all ties in together in a moment. Now, I was tempted as I was rereading sections of Bonhoeffer today to just bring about, read about three or four pages of it because it's just so good. But I'm going to spare you that. We're just going to two quotes. And so this is the first one where he describes cheap grace. He says, cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without the living incarnate Jesus Christ. So do you hear what he's saying? He's saying that grace is something that God does, but it's cheap grace if it's not also does not also include discipleship, if it also doesn't include the cross, if it doesn't also include Jesus. And then he goes on now, he says, as opposed to cheap grace, there's costly grace. He says it is costly because it calls us to discipleship. It is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs people their lives. It is grace because it thereby makes them live. And so as Jesus announces this message of grace, of the availability of the kingdom to all, he also calls people, and what's his consistent message? To follow me. To follow me. In other words, to imitate him, to be like him, to do the things that Jesus did. And what Bonhoeffer is pointing at is exactly this, that Christ is the center of our lives, that God is saving us, and that he empowers us, not disempowers us, by
by the power of the Spirit. We are participating in God's work. So as Jesus says, you are blessed, he's talking about God's action in us, that God initiates God's saving grace, but then God empowers us to live a different life. But he doesn't empower us to just live however we want. God doesn't just reach down and zap us and say, okay, you've got the power, now go and do whatever you want. But instead, the power of the Holy Spirit does what? Empowers us to live a life shaped like Jesus. Now, was Jesus someone who mourned? Absolutely. He mourned as he's riding into Jerusalem near the end of his life and he weeps over this city. He weeps when he sees his friend Lazarus laying in the tomb, though he knows in a few moments he's going to raise him from the dead. Was Jesus meek? He describes himself that same way where he doesn't use his power for over, but he submits to others. Does he hunger and thirst for righteousness? Was Jesus merciful? Was he pure in heart? Was he a peacemaker? Absolutely. He made peace between us and between God and between people. Was he persecuted because of righteousness? All these things. And so what Jesus is describing is as we're called into the kingdom, God's going to shape us to live like Jesus. This isn't earning our way into the kingdom, but an act of deliverance given by God in his son Jesus through our faith or allegiance to him worked in us by the Holy Spirit. So God is calling us into this. And so as Jesus, what Jesus is doing is announcing we are blessed because we are experiencing God's reign in our midst. Each of these beatitudes expresses the joy of participating in God's deliverance. It's a way to say God is coming and he's coming to do what? Because it doesn't end. It doesn't just say, blessed are you who mourn. He says, why? Because you'll be comforted. Because there will be a day, it may not be today, but there will be a day when all things are made right and you will be comforted. That your hunger and thirst for righteousness will one day be filled. You'll be shown mercy. You will see God. Blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. You'll be called children of God. And so these are all things. And so we're going to, in the next couple of weeks, take a look at more detail what these look like and how they do them. But so next week, we're going to have to pick up the pace a little bit because this week we managed to get through the word blessed. And, and if we go one word at a time, it might take us a really long time to get through the Sermon on the Mount. But we're going to pick up the pace a little bit and look at some of these different ones. But to wrap our heads around this idea that the experience of this good news was beginning in Jesus. And so as he comes and he announces and says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth or will inherit the land. He's speaking, he's saying, God has not forgotten you. Though you may be discarded, though you may be disregarded, though you may be looked down, despised by the rest of the world, and you may seem in this down and out place, God has not forgotten you. And God is coming to rescue you and deliver you. And he's going on and he's saying, and that deliverance is coming in him, in Jesus. He's announcing this fact, and so he begins this and he calls it, Matthew calls it the good news of the kingdom. 
He's not announcing these entrance requirements saying, here's all the things you've got to do in order to be a part of the kingdom. He's saying, God is coming and he's doing this before we've done anything. And he's announcing this good news to everyone. And he's inviting us to participate in and to enter to follow in. So for us sitting here, and we're wondering and maybe looking at our lives and saying, well, I know my life's kind of a mess. All these bad things are going on. I'm not sure. Does God really want me? Jesus is announcing this good news. And in some sense, I think what he's doing is painting this spectrum. He's saying there's nobody outside the reach of God's deliverance, of God's goodness and God's blessing. But instead, in Jesus Christ, he is coming in and he seeks to be a blessing to all. And then he's inviting us to begin to participate in that. He's giving us that call simply to follow him. And that following him is that language that Bonhoeffer used, the language of the Bible, of, of discipleship. Of arranging our lives under King Jesus. Of beginning to live that way. Because God comes and he delivers. He acts and then he invites us in response to that grace, as an act of faith, as our act of allegiance, to begin to follow him, to begin to arrange our lives in that way under Jesus. We can't simply hear the good news and say, oh, Jesus did it for us. I don't have to do anything. But instead, we're called to respond, to turn to him. But today, hear that good news, that no matter what your life looks like, no matter where you are, and maybe it's not you you have to think about, but maybe it's somebody else you're thinking about. But that God's blessing is available to all. The presence, the availability of God's kingdom is available to all. And that's the good news that Jesus came to announce. Amen.